War. We are starting, though, with the very latest and what is happening in Ukraine. conversations with Defense Minister Resnikov from Ukraine, and we have provided support that Ukraine has requested, including lethal and non-lethal aid, including economic and financial aid, Mr. Speaker, and we are in constant touch with Ukraine. In fact, Minister Resnikov called Canada a very, very dear friend, and I look forward to continuing to support him and his country in this time of need. Thank you. That is Canada's Minister of National Defence, Anita Anand. She was responding to questions put to her by a Conservative MP earlier today, suggesting that Canada hasn't done enough when it comes to aiding Ukraine. Well, let's bring in Stuart Prest, a lecturer at the SFU Political Science Department. Stuart, thanks so much for being with us again. Good afternoon. My pleasure. What are your thoughts as far as how Canada has responded to the requests for help and to what is happening in Ukraine? Well, Canada has uh, in some ways been very aggressive in its response and in some ways been uh, uh, more limited. So I think you can take apart the different kinds of uh, interventions we're seeing from Canada. On on the more aggressive side, it seems uh, increasingly clear that Canada has been uh, a real driving force in uh, tightening the the uh, the economic screws that are being placed on on Russia right now, and working uh, uh, Minister Freeland in particular, Christopher Freeland, working to uh, uh, convince uh, the the Americans and, and others to to join in uh, Canada and uh, and members of, of the European community to to uh, isolate Russia from access to their their uh, uh, foreign reserves. So that's a, a crucial step that we really haven't seen before. And uh, and likewise, moving to remove uh, other Russian banks from the uh, the SWIFT messaging systems as the way that banks can talk to one another internationally to, to communicate regarding money transfers and so on. And so effectively uh, finding ways to just stop uh, financial assistance uh, flowing into Russia in a way that might help Russia withstand some of the, the sanctions that are, are now coming online from, from Canada and elsewhere. Canada is providing some some military assistance as well, but that is more limited, and, and much of that is actually going to uh, uh, support uh, actual NATO allies in places like Latvia to try to prevent uh, this conflict from expanding further, to, to make it clear that NATO will be there to defend its, its uh, member nations. Uh, and you mentioned that as well, the military support. And uh, with Canada, I think it's the, the third shipment uh, of, of lethal aid, as it's being called, to be sent to Ukraine. Uh, do you think, though, does Canada have more of an impact more on, on what you were first talking about when we're talking about the banking system and those types of sanctions compared to what it can do and what the limits are when it comes to military support? I think that's true. Yeah, I think uh, Canada. Uh, it, we are seeing for for the first time, really, in some time, Canada um, using its uh, its own financial muscle, but more importantly, using its its voice on the international stage, both in, in public and behind the scenes, to to really try to drive the the international community, the leading actors like like the United States and and, and France, Germany, other partners, to to uh, act as aggressively as uh, Canada wanted to, and to to really try to to drive action forward. And that's uh, that's something of a change of the, way, of the role we've seen Canada play in in recent years, where uh, the country has often 
been at the table, but not necessarily a driving force behind uh, different initiatives that we're seeing. So I think this is this is a real opportunity for Canada to to exercise that that kind of uh, coordinating and, and leadership role in a, an area where we really do have, have expertise and an interest. Obviously, Canada has a, a significant population of Ukrainian Canadians here, so there are uh, many hundreds of thousands of Canadians who have a, a real stake in, in seeing how this conflict plays out. And so there's there's a, a desire for for real action there. Uh, and uh, uh, on the military side, Canada can provide some assistance. We are we have access to intelligence gathering and so on. We have some military supplies and aid to provide, but uh, we are obviously more limited on, on that front than, say, uh, actors like uh, the UK and the United States. Uh, we've heard from uh, from Russia, Moscow uh, officials there saying that any countries that are sending military equipment to Ukraine will be responsible or will be held accountable if they are used against Russian forces. Not suggesting that that would be a reason not to, but should Canada be concerned, do you think, with retaliation? I think anytime you're into a, a conflict like this, we have to think carefully about the, the actions that, that we're taking and the potential consequences, but, but that always has to be weighed against the the possible consequences of, of inaction here, where we have a, a country that is so dramatically uh, going in the face of international norms and international law and uh, effectively engaging in a, a war of a territorial conquest in, in Europe. It's just something we haven't seen since, really, since the Second World War in this form. So, I mean, that is a, that is a dramatic escalation, and uh, I think we, we need to be aware of the possibility of, of uh, uh, consequences from Canadian action, but, but there are real consequences from inaction in this situation like this as well. Uh, and a lot of people have been, been talking about that, making that reference as well, that we've not seen an invasion like this and a, an action like this, again, since the Second World War. Uh, what are your thoughts on the response of Ukraine? Because I think even in the when this first happened, there was some surprise at just how well Ukraine was fighting back, how, what, what kind of a defense it was putting up. What are your thoughts looking at how things have unfolded so far? I think it's it's fair to say that Ukraine is performing uh, far better than, than many feared. It, it is, in some ways, a, a, a young country in the sense that it is uh, it has been independent of of Russia and the Soviet uh, Empire for for uh, just a couple of decades now. And and so I think one of the calculations that we see Vladimir Putin was making was that. Ukraine just wouldn't have a kind of a spirit to, to defend this this country. Just seeing that Ukraine is not not really any different than Russia, and, and what we're seeing here is that uh, the the truth is, is anything but Ukraine. Ukrainians have uh, a fierce uh, patriotism and a willingness to stand up for the country, and uh, the military is. Is is quite well organized and quite uh, able to to defend its territory. And obviously, it's it's not a fair fight. Russia is far superior in terms of its overall military capabilities. But I I think the Ukraine has really caught Russia off guard here with the stiffness of the defense. And and it is perhaps because of that we're already seeing some some ceasefire talks unfolding on the, the border of Belarus. Uh, and what are your thoughts on that as well? I wanted to ask you. So there has been this first round of talks, the aim of these talks to stop the fighting, to stop this war that is taking place. Is it possible, do you think? Or what are your thoughts on the fact that even the fact that these talks are taking place? I think we have to be uh, cautiously uh 
uh, well, we have to be cautious about the, the situation where we, we hope that the, the bloodshed will soon uh, stop because for all of the Ukrainians' uh, demonstrated bravery right now, it is also just uh, uh, a moment of intense tragedy for the country the longer this conflict unfolds. But I think... Uh, uh, there, it is a situation in which both sides are really going to be looking for, for guarantees that uh, neither side are going to be really comfortable giving. I mean, Russia has entered into this conflict with clear designs on uh, influence in, in at least eastern Ukraine and uh, a real, trying to put a, a real keep out signs uh, to keep Ukraine from integrating any further with uh, with Europe or the, or the West. And, and Ukraine, given this situation, is going to be all the more fearful of, of future Russian provocation and they're going to be needing a guarantee that if if the the conflict subsides, they're not going to be finding themselves in a, a similar situation a, a few months or a few years down the road. And so there's a lot of work to be done to to reach any kind of basis for a ceasefire. But but the, the sooner the the two sides can come back and talk together again, the the, the more hope there is that perhaps this, this conflict can come to a resolution. All right, Stuart Prest, thank you as always for joining the program today. Great to talk with you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Well, you might have heard in the news today, an arrest was made after a very frightening situation unfolded in the neighborhood around Vancouver General Hospital in the neighborhood of 10th Avenue and Oak Street on the weekend on Saturday. One of several rather frightening attacks, alleged assaults that have taken place in the city of Vancouver. We've talked about this previously on the show, the number of stranger assaults certainly up in the city. Well, three Vancouver city councillors are inviting the public, inviting Vancouver residents to join them for a virtual town hall forum with the topic being public safety. This is happening on March 3rd. It's uh, the first in a new series of public conversations that are being called Speaking of Vancouver. One of those councillors is Sarah Kirby Young and she joins us now to talk a little bit more about how this came about. Councillor Sarah Kirby Young, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me back. Uh, can you talk a bit about how this, this came about and how this virtual town hall first kind of was organized? Yeah, um, as you mentioned, with myself along with my fellow councillors, Lisa Dominato and Rebecca Bly are hearing consistently from the public on a number of issues um, and wanting to have a chance to have a real dialogue about things that are happening in the city of Vancouver. And so we've created this forum called Speaking of Vancouver, um, it's going to be a series where we'll tackle different topics, and we decided to kick off and have our first one be a safety on uh, public safety forum because that's the issue that we're hearing the most about right now that is really concerning and top of mind for residents across the city. Are there specific topics then that people are being asked to stick to uh, if they do join and they want to take part in this on March 3rd? Yeah, it's an open forum, so um, it's wide open for any member residents of the members of the public to join. We're going to zero in on public safety. We have a panel, um, and I think that bring three great perspectives around what's a very broad issue. We have uh, Deputy Chief Howard Chow from the BPD. Uh, we have harm recovery um, and reduction, harm reduction advocate Guy Felicella. Um, and then we also have Nolan Marshall, who is the new lead for the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association and can speak really to what's been happening in downtown. Um, so we are trying to zero in on public safety, but we really want to hear directly from residents about what their personal experiences are, um, either if they themselves have been victims of crime or their families, or just how they're feeling about safety in the city as a whole. 
Uh, I know you also commented on social media about what happened in Vancouver on Saturday afternoon in that area around 10th and Oak Street. Uh, we heard from police today that an arrest has, has been made, uh, but also that there was arrest, I believe it was made under the Mental Health Act, which brings in th- that part of the, the conversation about uh, people that need mental health supports, need health supports. So what are your thoughts, though, on what happened or, or what we're hearing about what happened to so many women specifically on Saturday? Well, I'm, I'm in that neighborhood quite often, and I was actually there on Sunday afternoon, and I saw, you could just feel it um, in the air in the neighborhood, saw a number of people walking past one of the buildings right at 10th and um, Oak, as you mentioned, um, where women, you know, had to sort of duck inside and um, were attacked, and you, you saw that uh, we have at this count, I think, five women so far that have been identified, and as a woman, um, and in a neighborhood that I'm in often, um, it hits me to my core, and you could tell from the looks on neighbors' faces that people were looking around with a big sense of unease about the fact that it's it's everywhere in the city now, and they're starting to be concerned about going about their regular and their daily lives, and that's just not the city that we want to be. I think, to your point around this case, it was a mental health issue. We're hearing that loud and clear. We have a huge gap, I think, in my opinion, in terms of mental health services. Um, We have a real gap in terms of supportive housing. But what I'm hearing loud and clear is that the public doesn't feel safe, and we can't... It's not an an either-or public safety or investing more in mental health support. It's both. Uh, so how does a forum like this, other than giving people a place to speak and a place to raise concerns, how would a forum like this actually prompt change? Well, first, I think it's important that people actually have a f- place to have that safe conversation. I think that people feel dismissed by this mayor and council. Um, and, you know, we've heard the mayor say, I don't feel safe in the city. And that's been cold comfort to people. I think that's really diminished and dismissed people's concerns. So the first thing I hear is that people are looking for a chance to have that form and that conversation. We want to hear from people what would make them um, feel more secure. Sometimes we hear, for example, that it's things like visible presence and more um, beat officers. Sometimes we hear it's around sort of a agreement that we do have those gaps in terms of supportive housing. And so we're looking for a number of tangible things to come out of this forum. One, to get a sense of what it is that will make people feel safe, that they want us to move forward, but also I think a real opportunity for collective advocacy across partners and across partnerships um, to senior levels of government and what those gaps are. I think working in tandem and working together makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that this mayor has really disenfranchised the police department and created a rift between the PD and the city of Vancouver. Um, and I think that we want to be compassionate and caring by bringing, you know, to the, the harm perspective and the social issues. But what we don't want to do um, is not work collectively together. And that's really what the forum's about. Uh, we often hear from people uh, that call in when we talk about this or email when we talk about this. And one of the big frustrations I hear from people is even when we hear, and in this case, uh, an arrest was made, I don't think anybody feels confident that an arrest in this case is going to make people safer if it's uh, for no other reason than the, the likelihood of somebody being found accountable for these attacks and being being uh, for taken to to face consequences, uh, it's not going to happen. People kind of view this as a revolving door. And and even when we hear about shoplifters being arrested, they're back on the street. We hear about them having hundreds of convictions in the past. What do you say to the public that even when there is more enforcement, they don't feel safe? 
Yeah, I think you've put your your fingers on on one really significant piece of it because for the folks, when there's people with mental health and other issues, they clearly need different types of supports. When you're talking about opportunistic crime, the issue you're identifying is that those consequences aren't there and you have this sort of, you know, round um, rotating door phenomenon of people back onto the street. Um, And I think that's one area that we haven't tackled enough in terms of the legal system. Um, and what the consequences are for repeat offenders, for example, and how that's dealt with. But I think if we come together, um, City of Vancouver, um, working with partners in police department, with folks in community, um, we're differentiating between what is that opportunistic crime um, and what are more medical responses that we can have a lot of, I think, power in vocalizing and advocating for those missing pieces. And I think that the legal system is a big part of it that hasn't been discussed enough. Uh, this is going to be the first. So, so this is a virtual event. Are there going to be other forums as well for people to take part or for people to come out and share their experiences? Yeah, absolutely. Um, people, when they sign up for this forum on the website, they can indicate if they're interested in getting information about future ones. We'll probably see us running these monthly um, and we'll do them on issues that are of interest to people. Um, I think things that are on our radar are things like housing affordability, things like city services and focusing on that, um, getting us in terms of economic recovery and supporting our small business um, as we lift ourselves out of the pandemic. Um, Those would be a few that are top of mind. Uh, Will there be any move or push or if people would prefer, say, an in-person forum, will there be any opportunity for that? I think we would welcome that um, at the right time. We obviously want to um, kick this one off and provide a, a broad opportunity for people to do it. It's our first one. Um, so, you know, we'll adjust it as we go based on people's comfort level. But as we start to reopen up from COVID, I could absolutely see us doing a hybrid where we might be able to provide an in-person opportunity as well. All right. Uh, Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, thanks so much for joining us and for talking a bit more about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Appreciate it. Well, as of today, as you've likely heard on the news, it is somewhat less restrictive for Canadians to re-enter the country. This, as health officials say, the peak of the Omicron variant has subsided and is continuing to subside right across the country. Earlier today, we heard from Richard Bartram with WestJet, one of many officials in the travel agency, say, travel industry, sorry, saying that they welcome the dropping of PCR tests for Canadian travel. Travelers returning home, but saying the fact that an antigen test is still required means these rules, the relaxation doesn't go far enough. The airlines across Canada have spent tens upon tens upon tens of millions of dollars on um, the the, uh, the safety and well-being of everybody on board the plane, and that's not the same rigor that's taking place in the community, and yet we're continuing to see the uh, the requirements for testing. And he went on to say uh, that the Canadian Travel and Tourism Roundtable is again calling on Ottawa to remove all COVID-19 travel restrictions, including the pre-departure testing. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Martin Firestone, President of Travel Secure Incorporated and also a travel insurance expert. Martin, thanks so much for being with us today. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Uh, What are your thoughts on what we've seen today as far as the loosening of the testing requirements? Very positive. Who's kidding who? Positive, but still more to be done in order to get to the ultimate, which is getting all testing removed so that people 
will travel and have no issues with it. There were three major announcements, basically reducing the advisory from a three to a two. That gave people confidence in traveling again. The fact that kids under 12 did not have to quarantine when they got back home and could go to school, that was important too, or daycare. And the last one being a switch from PCR down to a rapid antigen. All three contributed to a big upswing in travel um, purchases the last week or so. Uh, let's talk first, though, about that one. So the, the, the travel advisory from a three to a two, what does that mean or does it have any impact other than making people feel more confident? Does it have an impact or anything when it comes to insurance and, and for people traveling? Yeah, great question. It did affect some insurance companies' products. When December 15th, we put in a level three travel advisory, I should say our government did, that excluded COVID from some contracts that were out there. So yes, big time. Now that it's gone back to a two, now it's back in. So the worry about being covered for COVID or not, of course, everyone should still check with their benefit plan provider, their individual group insurance, their health plan, whatever, and confirm that now with a level two as opposed to three, am I covered for COVID if I'm traveling? All right. You mentioned as well, so the age, the 12 and under, because that was quite restrictive for families as well, that even if you did all your testing and people who could be vaccinated were, there were still those those requirements or those rules for kids under 12. Uh, Do you think that will have a big impact then, I guess, especially with spring break coming up with families traveling? It did for sure, because nobody wanted to go away for a week. And then if they both go back to work and they had to stay home because one of their children, if they were under 12 or unvaccinated, could not go back, that had a huge impact on people. So, yes, that alleviated people who were sitting on the fence and deciding whether they could make it work. And they, in fact, now book their March trips, book their summer trips, book trips in general. Yes. And and the testing is a big one as well. So, and I mentioned that and played uh, that short clip from uh, Richard Bartram. He's with WestJet. But again, the Canadian Travel and Tourism Roundtable saying it's time to remove all of the COVID-19 restrictions. And that would include the pre-departure and the re-entry testing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's listen, it, I was so excited when I heard that it was being reduced to a uh, antigen test, but I cannot tell you the amount of calls and emails, some of them not all that nice, suggesting what's so fantastic about it. We still have to do testing. We have to get rid of it all. So I, I'm a firm believer in better late than never. I'm happy that they've done that, but no doubt that is still going to cause issues with people who are saying, why do I want to come to Canada if I have to be tested? Or people leaving on vacation, why do I want to leave if I have to get tested coming back? That ultimately has to be removed in order for us to get back to any kind of good travel again. Well, and, and certainly some of the questions being asked about that, because all along when the Canadian government was being asked, why is it a PCR test requirement? What is the, Why is that in place rather than the antigen? I mean, we had been told time and time again, because it's more accurate, because the PCR test is a better test. So I think that is one of the valid questions is how, if it's still so important to do testing, how is it okay now that we're using this test that previously the government had said wasn't reliable enough? Yeah. Bottom line is, it isn't that important to be tested again, because who's kidding who? The variant is in the country. So the purpose of catching it at the airports was to stop it from coming into the country. And that's been the complaint of much of the medical group lately, that it's here anyway. We'd rather have these PCR tests available in the community rather than at the airport level. So the concern is not as much on the accuracy of the test, quite frankly, right now. If you are fully vaccinated, that should be more than enough safety measure put in place. And that's all everyone is saying who wants further testing to be stopped, is that if we are fully vaccinated, it really shouldn't matter.
Uh, there is still uh, as well, if you're coming into Canada from the United States, you could be pulled in for a random test or different as well if you're coming in from other countries. So what are your thoughts on the, the testing that is still happening at airports? Yeah, that's a, a decision. But having said that, they're not asking you to self-isolate until you get the results, which is key. That was another thing that was a stumbling block. So you may get pulled over, you may get tested, but you don't have to stay inside or quarantine until you get the results. Again, it's just another little bit of a layer that ultimately has to come off if we're ever going to get back to good travel again. But even that, doesn't that seem odd as well? In The rule for that too, if you're a Canadian, if you're returning home, but say you're flying, say you live in Vancouver and you're flying through Toronto, you could be pulled in for the random test, but you don't stay there. You then get on the plane and you continue your journey to Vancouver while the test goes off to be to be analyzed. And it may come back positive, but if it even if it does, you've already gotten back on a plane and continued on your journey, which to me doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And how on earth is that keeping anyone safe? That's the whole point. If you were to analyze half the things that have been done in the last two years, you'd question each and every one of them. There is no question that when we were back a year ago with far higher degree of a variant than the current Omicron, one that could actually end up in an ICU and a ventilator, that was the same thing that was happening. People were landing and then getting a connecting flight, and there was no idea whether they had it or not. So you're 100% correct. It doesn't make sense if you look at this too closely. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Do you think then, I mean, like you said, kind of better late than never, or we're seeing these small changes, but but again, it is, uh, and you mentioned this as well, it is this arbitrary line of the border. Even if we're just talking about travel between Canada and the United States, that you could fly all over Canada and do whatever you wanted. But the minute you step foot over the border and spend a half an hour in Blaine, suddenly you need these testing requirements to get back in. Uh, What are your thoughts on the Arrive Can app and the fact that that's still in place as well? Well, I mean, the Arrive Can app, while it can be a little... um tough for people to answer, especially the elderly or the snowbirds who are going away. It still serves its purpose. I mean, it asks where you're going and where are you quarantining. If you had to quarantine, you have to show proof of what was once a PCR test. Now it's going to be an antigen test. I guess all of it is still in place for a reason, but ultimately it will come off also. So it has its purposes. It did for sure previously. And now the only question is how much longer are you going to need more than just your passport to get back into this country? And that's going to be the key question. And do you think that we are going to see a scenario uh, because so say now I believe you can fly to the UK or you will be able to soon fly to the UK without any testing or without any requirements, but then you will need those requirements to come back to Canada. That's correct. Now, the question is, when is Canada? We are the last G7 country, actually one of the last countries, period, that still has these restrictions in place. They have got to come off at some point, albeit they want to just keep watching the count go down, down and down. But at some point, we are going to get hurt from a tourism perspective, for sure at the border crossing. That should be eliminated immediately. Those people who are just going over for an afternoon, for them to have to get a tests, whether it be PCR or antigen, it's still dissuading them from doing that. So for tourism to thrive in the border cities, that little one's got to get out of the way for people who are under 72 hours for sure. Right. For the those quick trips, you mean when you're coming back? Exactly. Just over the border for an afternoon of shopping or dinner or a short visit to have to now go and get 
an antigen test, albeit it's cheaper and more inexpensive and probably more accessible than the PCR was. It still is something you have to do. If they could take that away, that would be a good start. It also seems weird, or I know, I know that a lot of people have questioned as well, that you can drive across the border. The agent might ask you if you're vaccinated. We're hearing from people anecdotally that they might ask. Nobody's really being asked for proof, but people are being asked. But you don't have to take a test if you drive across the border, but you do if you fly across the border just add it to the list of things that just don't quite make sense but you are accurate in saying what you are it's always been a question is what is the difference between going over the land border or what is the difference between going and getting on a plane it just doesn't it just doesn't add up Uh, what is your advice then for people who might be waiting for more restrictions to be loosened for them to be taken away who are uh, concerned about making sure insurance is correct if they are planning trips in the near future what is your advice as far as what people should be doing to get ready uh, to travel again yeah so i i think it's time to travel again i'm confident last year of course i advised against it because of fear of overcapacity at hospitals because of covid and ICUs and, and ventilators and things like that. So let's put it this way. I think you can travel again. One product that still is necessary that was never around before is trip interruption because with the testing requirements still in place, you could test positive, remember, and have to quarantine 10 days before you can get back on a plane again and come home. That's still there, regardless of whether it was a PCR test or an antigen test that said you were positive. So there is insurance needs to cover accommodation costs, expenses, and new airfare to get home that people should still be looking at doing if they're going away on trips at this point. All right. Martin Firestone, always great to to get your advice and to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Take care. Well, as you just heard on the news, the BC Real Estate Association has put out a report, a paper called A Better Way Home, and it includes several recommendations on ways that the government could address several challenges in BC's housing market. And joining us to talk more about this is the CEO of the BC Real Estate Association, Darlene Hyde. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. Great to be here. Let's talk first about this idea of a cooling off period and why your organization says this is not something that's going to fix the problems or it's not a solution. What are the concerns you have with the idea of a cooling off period? Uh, Well, we don't believe the cooling off period will moderate prices uh, in the market, number one. It was designed uh, by the minister herself as a consumer protection measure. It had, by her own admission at the time, it had nothing to do with affordability, and it's true. Uh, What the cooling off period uh, allows people to do is get out of deals uh, and that they've made. The problem with that is that uh, in a condition of scarcity, and we are, we have very low supply relative to demand, buyers will uh, make offers on multiple properties, and they will rescind all but one. Uh, They're likely to do that in order to gain competitive advantage, and uh, usually it's the well-heeled or the the more uh, resourced uh, buyers who can do that, the more sophisticated buyers, the new buyer, uh, the new first-time buyer is not in that position. The other thing we feel is that, and our own economics research tells us, that it will create more bids just because you can make more bids and you can cancel out of some of them or or all but one of them or all of them. And if you make more bids, that has an impact on the overall affordability. So, indeed, it was designed to protect customers, but what it does is it 
uh, raises rates, raises overall listing prices by 2 to 3%. Um, another factor, uh, we feel buyers will, because there's an uncertainty around the sale of their unit, their home, they will price that into the listing price so that we will see increases in listing prices. And finally, I think many buyers, uh, sorry, sellers are also buyers. So they are depending on the proceeds of the sale of their home to finance their next home. And if they see the sale of their home in jeopardy or in question, that puts the purchase of their next home in question and on and on and on. So you have chains of dependent transactions going on, which would be very disruptive to the market. So bottom line, uh, it favors the seller, uh, sorry, the buyer, and it uh, does nothing for affordability and uh, creates uncertainty and disruption in the market. So we feel we've got a better, a better solution that we want the government to look at at least. And is that what you're referring to? Is that the pre-offer period? Yes, yes. The pre-offer period is a period of five business days. So it could be longer than five days if you bridged it uh, with a weekend uh, or a stat or something like that. And in that time, uh, the buyer would have access to uh, property disclosure statements, which must be made available, all strata documents. They can have a home inspection. Uh, they can do their insurance issues and, and investigate those. They can talk to their mortgage broker or their banker or their credit union and get everything lined up so that they are not making hasty decisions as they are now. Uh, right now, uh, many sellers are saying, give me clean offers. I don't want any subjects. So many prospective buyers are saying, well, I guess I'll forego that home inspection. I wanted to put subject to home inspection, but if I do that, I won't win, I won't win this house. Well, the prospective buyer is act, acting against themselves because not to get a home inspection before you're buying a million-dollar property is not a smart idea from a risk management perspective. So this pre-offer period allows you to tend to those details, like the home inspection, like whatever else you've got to do, so that when you make an offer, it's thoughtful, it's well thought out, and you're not making it in a panic. And so that's the difference. It's putting the time, the thought period ahead of the offer uh, making as opposed to after right. or in the midst of. So that would be, so if a pre-offer period uh, was brought in, the mandatory, so a minimum, I think it was five business days from when the right. property is first listed, that would stop uh, these uh, so-called, I guess we sometimes call them guerrilla offers, people that just go in, boom, and say, I'll give you this much, I'll give you above asking, no subjects, here you go. Right, the bully, they call them bully offers, and, and yeah, that would eliminate any of those, and the uh, the seller are going to sit down on day five or six, so, you know, whenever the period is over, and have have a look at the various offers that have been made and hopefully they are solid offers because people have had time to put their thoughts together fewer collapsed deals and more solid sales so we just think it's a smart idea that should be looked at as opposed to a cooling off period which we feel will not benefit prices at all do you see any issues with that, though, when you talk about the first-time buyers or buyers that are dealing with a very specific amount of money, whether for whatever they've been uh, been given financing for or whatever down payment they have? If we're talking about a pre-offer period, doesn't that kind of put us, though, in a scenario where every offer is going to be an offer with no subjects? If you've already done the inspection and you've got the papers and you've, you've done everything that you would have in previous times put subject to – 
wouldn't that all put a a financial burden on potential buyers in that if you're now having to do a home inspection on every place you're interested in, that's hundreds of dollars every time you're just interested in a place and want to put in an offer. You may choose not to do a home inspection. I mean, home inspections are totally dependent on what you're buying. If you're buying a a, a teardown, you clearly don't need one. If you're buying a brand new house, you don't need one. So it's a judgment call. Uh, But many buyers are saying now, uh, oh, when I bought this house and got and won the bid, I wished I had put in a home inspection because I, I got, you know, invisible problems that I didn't know about. I inherited some problems. So I think it allows the buyer to use their judgment as to whether they need it or not. Uh, and right now, I mean, I've been a buyer uh, and I would not buy anything without a home inspection. Uh, so this way I can get my home inspection. And maybe, you know, they, maybe they're not buying, they're not putting offers on many properties. So it's that it's the home that they want that they are spending time on a uh, on a home inspection. So I think it just gives them time to do what they need to do in terms of due diligence that they're not doing now for fear of not getting the bid. Right. Not winning the house. Uh, there have been some that have, have said even they would like to see or, or some calls for mandatory inspections. What are your thoughts on that? Well, again, uh, that is a, a, a kind of a subject up for review. I think there are a lot of circumstances where you don't need an inspection. Uh, as I, I mentioned before, if it's a teardown, why bother? If it's a new home, you've got usually a home um uh, a home warranty associated with with the house, so I, I think mandatory is is something that needs to be you know for, further discussed. But I think that the choice should be the buyers uh, myself. All right. We talked then about about this idea of the the mandatory, the five business days for a pre-offer period. What about the calls that we're also seeing in some cases to stop the practice of blind bidding? Yes. Now, that's another subject, and we looked at it. We had our own economics team look at it, and then we looked at the work of the Smart Prosperity Institute. It's a a think tank and an economics think tank in Ottawa. They did a lot of work on that. They looked at other jurisdictions where blind bidding has been restricted or banned. Uh, I believe New Zealand and Australia are those countries. And, again, what they found was upward pressure on price. Um, because uh, in an open auction, and, you know, I'm thinking about open auctions at Sotheby's or whatever, and you're bidding on a piece of art, and you see somebody put a bid up for a certain amount, what that shows the whole community is that this has value. You know, this particular asset has value. Uh, So um, there's there's a lot of interest there, and so it it creates counter-bidding and bidding. It can create bidding wars, obviously, and they're only, but they're public wars, you know. So uh, the evidence is that from the Smart Prosperity Institute and others, that this isn't a silver bullet. Uh, Now, that said, we need more transparency in terms of offers. So how do you create more transparency in terms of offers, knowing that, okay, this property's had five offers on it? Uh, That tells you something. That tells the prospective buyer, okay, this this home, this property is of great interest. We, you want to, you want to balance that with uh, privacy issues. A lot of buyers don't want their names attached to, you know, everybody knows they put a bid on uh, for a particular house and you, you want to look at whether the amount should be in there. But I think there's more work to do on 
working with um, working with the real estate community and and buyers to see how can we make our offer registry or something like that available to them to provide more transparencies in the offer process, short of going to restricting blind, blind bidding. Right. Is there a way to do it? And I know that in some jurisdictions, uh, there are mechanisms in place. I don't know if it's done here where somebody will go in and say to their realtor and the realtor knows obviously that, that this is their top bid, but you, you keep going up in say increments of $5,000. So you don't necessarily know what the other bids are, but it's not as though you're going in and you think you have to go in $200,000 above right. asking right off the bat. Those are called referential bids, and they uh, have no legal um, foundation. So that's a, it's a bit of a legal problem insofar as referential bids are not considered uh, legal bids. And so that's the problem we have with that. It kind of makes intuitive sense. You know, uh, it's kind of like one of those silent auctions that you go to and you know that the last bid was 100, so you put 105. But uh, right now there's some real legal uh, uh, issues with that particular approach. Do you think that is an approach, though, that could work? Well, you know, again, what we're recommending is get the players together, let's collaborate, let's talk, let's find solutions. Uh, What we didn't appreciate particularly was um, an announcement right off the hop that we're going blind bidding, uh, sorry, that we're going uh, cooling off period uh, from the minister. So, you know, it wasn't made with any consultation. We don't even know what the rationale or the policy is behind it. We'd like to see it. Uh, so, you know, our message is let's talk more, let's consult more, let's collaborate more, let's look at the whole system as opposed to one little thing. Because changing one little thing is not going to change the problem we are in. Uh, the supplies issues are decades in the making. Uh, we are woefully undersupplied. Uh, the, again, don't believe us, but the Bank of Nova Scotia just issued a report last year that said Canada is the lowest of any G7 countries uh, with uh, housing units per thousand people. Uh, we need 1.8 million more homes, according to Scotiabank. Um, and then when you look at BC, uh, we, uh, we're 25,000 l- listings short of what we need to be in balance. So the houses on the market are about one-third of the demand like this this is unsustainable and uh immigration is coming back now having been in hiatus for the last two years over the pandemic we've got probably bc another 70 to eighty thousand uh immigrants coming in and we need these people to shore up our aging workforce but we have no place to put them we have no place to house them and so we're having trouble meeting domestic demand let alone uh international demand and we have to solve for this problem uh, one of the one of the recommendations that we've made is tie tie funding to um, municipalities. Make it worth their while to get de- dense, denser housing options built, uh, because if they don't, they don't get um, infrastructure funding or transit funding. Uh, make it matter, because right now you have uh, two things going on in the municipal world. You have sometimes the permitting processes are not as streamlined as they could be, and it takes multiple years to get homes off, you know, being built. And number two, developments can be kiboshed quite easily at public hearings uh, by residents who say, you know, I don't want this high, you know, this this dense, uh, uh, you know, townhomes, or I don't want this apartment building in my neighborhood. 
and the municipal people have no cover. They can't. They they have no cover from the province or the feds by saying, "Listen, if we don't do this, we don't get the the transit funding, or we don't get the infrastructure funding." So we need to look at at, at ways in a collect a collective approach. And there's no one easy solution, and that's why the 34 solutions in our or the 34 recommendations in our uh, paper are just the start, just the start of, uh, you know, consultation. All right. But it's a huge, it's a huge problem. All right. Well, Darlene, we'll have to leave it there for today, but uh, I do appreciate your time so much. Thank you for coming on the show. Anytime, Jill.